0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Need to hire? You need Indeed. Owning a small business can be overwhelming. How can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. There's so many places to reach customers. Email, text messages, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, live events. The list goes on. How are you, as the business owner, expected to own all of those channels? That's where Constant Contact comes in to help. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. I use this to grow my email list, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: And away we go, episode 88. Of the Al Galdi podcast, the Pierre Garcon episode, or is it the Doc Walker episode? Who am I kidding? Of course, it's the Doc Walker episode. It is Monday, June 21st, 2021, the day after Father's Day 2021. I hope you had a nice Father's Day. Maybe you spent it with your family doing something nice. Maybe that something nice was your family Leaving you alone. Maybe you were like me and you spent half of your Father's Day on your deck trying to defrost a freezer by smashing a hammer into ice that refused to break up. Don't ever let anyone tell you that defrosting a freezer, and this is one of those mini freezers, is easy because those people are wrong. I did, though, get to enjoy sports over the weekend, including the NBA playoffs. And NBA playoffs now that have the Los Angeles Clippers in the Western Conference Finals. The Clippers have finally made the NBA's Final Four. First time in the 51-season history of the Clippers franchise that the franchise has made it to a Conference Finals. The Clippers' Conference Finals drought had been the longest in the NBA. The Clippers ending their Conference Finals drought now leaves, guess who? Yes, you got it. Our team as the team with the longest conference finals drought. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, of course it's our team. The Wizards slash Bullets now have the longest conference finals drought in the NBA. 42 seasons as of the end of this season. The Bullets, as you may know, made the NBA finals four times in the 1970s, 1971, 75, 78, when the Bullets won the NBA championship for the only time in franchise history, and 1979, and that 1979 NBA postseason remains the last one in which the Wizards slash Bullets franchise made the conference finals. You know, it used to be that the Wizards were known as the Clippers of the East. Well, the Clippers of the West, the actual Clippers now, have made it finally to a conference finals. We'll see when our team next does that. Oh, by the way, congratulations to Bradley Beal. Looks like he'll be playing for Team USA. We on Friday had multiple reports that Beal has committed to play for the 2021 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team in the Tokyo Summer Olympics. And speaking of summer, it now officially is summer. Summer has begun June 20th to September 22nd. So enjoy yourselves accordingly. Of course, there is no better way to enjoy yourself Then with this podcast, a big show, as is always the case on a Monday, a very big weekend for the Nationals, a very good weekend for the Nationals as they won three of four against the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park. Kyle Schwarber is hitting home runs like every 30 seconds. Eric Fetty all of a sudden is 1988 Oral Hershizer. The baby shark is back. We have a lot to get into with the Nats off their biggest series of the season so far. A successful series that capped a successful homestand that has the Nats now with some mojo, with some oomph, with some life. We've been waiting on this. We finally have it. I'll talk Nats in depth next segment. I have plenty for you on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast on the Washington football team. We had Washington football team legal news over the last few days regarding the name that we need to discuss. What if going with Washington football team or something similar to that as the permanent name isn't legally feasible? Something to be thinking about here off what has come out over the last few days. Also, special guest on the show, a writer for Hogs Haven which is the SB Nation site for the Washington football team. The writer is a man who goes by the name Kyle Smith for GM. Yes, Kyle Smith for GM. Uh, I've got news for him. He's probably going to be disappointed. But anyway, he asked to remain anonymous. Don't worry, he's a normal person. He just, for whatever reason, is a man of mystery. But he's a very smart guy, has written a number of good pieces, including one that came out on Saturday on Ryan Fitzpatrick and when he historically has performed his best. You're going to want to hear this because there seems to be a particular key for Fitzpatrick doing well, and that key certainly seems to be something that will be in effect for the Washington football team in 2021. I will talk Orioles as well. More losses for them as they drop two or three to the Toronto Blue Jays at Oreo Park at Camden Yards over the weekend, despite hitting a bunch of home runs and despite actually getting some good starting pitching in the series, even when the O's do some things well, they lose. You see, now that's a tanking team. That's how you properly tank. You do some things well and you still end up losing more than you win. Your support of the podcast always appreciated. If you're not already a subscriber to the pod, please consider subscribing. Doesn't cost you anything. Also, if you have the time, uh, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review. Doing these things doesn't take much time, but helps out the podcast a lot. And as the great Pat McAfee likes to say, be a friend and tell a friend. Spread the word. About the Algaldi podcast, and tell me what you think. You can email me the Algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Algaldi. Email from Billy D in North Carolina of something we spent a lot of time on on Friday's installment of the podcast. Ron Rivera continuing to talk up the Washington football team quarterback competition, but leave out Kyle Allen. It is a two-man battle for Don Ron, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Versus Taylor Heineke, and I asked you for your theories regarding what has happened here between Ron and Kyle. Of Kyle seemingly having been Ron's guy, writes Billy D. I enjoyed the discussion of the WFTQB situation after Coach Ron's comments. Thank you, Billy. Another thought occurred to me: the reason Kyle Allen may be fading out of the picture might be the emergence of Stephen Montez with Fitzpatrick and Heineke. QB one and two in some order, and WFT probably keeping three QBs on the roster, Montez may offer the position flex, Coach Ron loves. This is especially true if they are thinking of Montez in a Taysom Hill type role. A third QB takes up a valuable roster spot. However, if that third QB can also be involved in some wildcat running plays and maybe as a receiver, Coach Ron will love that. Maybe Kyle Allen is headed to the practice squad, question mark. I'm open to any theory, and I actually think there may be some merit to that theory. Look, there's a reason that the coaching staff is trying out Steven Montez in this Taysom Hill type role. Now, does he take to the role? Does he excel in the role? Does he end up proving himself worthy of a spot on the active roster? We don't know. But yeah, man, the coaching staff wouldn't be doing this with Steven Montez If the coaching staff didn't think it wasn't worth doing this with Steven Montez, if the coaching staff didn't think that there is potential in having Steven Montez as this position flex Taysom Hill like quarterback. And so, if Montez is going to be given a good faith shot at this, and let's say he does well with this and he ends up making the team, well, he's making the team at someone's expense. I still would be surprised if Kyle Allen doesn't make the team. I still think Washington will keep all three quarterbacks. But there's no doubt the way Ron has talked about Kyle, him making the roster to begin the season is now far more up in the air than it was just a few weeks ago. It has to be. Ron has totally changed his tune when it comes to Kyle Allen. There's no debating that. And I've gotten a kick out of some of the people who are like, "Eh, you know, you're making something out of nothing. I'm like, the heck I am. We've seen this with Ron. when His words matter the way he talks about players and people matter. Last December, when he gave his first lukewarm answer on Kyle Smith, I noted it at the time and I got feedback of, oh, come on, Goldie, why are you trying to start drama in the middle of the season? I wasn't. I was simply telling you what I thought, what I observed. You know, any doofus months after the fact and say, oh yeah, there were problems between those two people or, oh yeah, Ron soured on that person. It's in the moment. Before it becomes a thing, can you identify the thing? And if you listen to Ron closely and you track what he says at these press conferences, you develop sort of a sense of where Ron is at with different people. I'm sure many of you are developing this sense. And so with Ron having talked the way he has talked about Kyle Allen recently, how do you not note that? How does that not stand out to you, especially with the way Ron talked about Kyle Allen late last season, right? when Ron got asked that question about Alex Smith, would you be here if not for Alex? And Ron said, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy, we've gone from that from last late December to now this in the middle of June, Ron saying Kyle Allen isn't even a factor in a quarterback competition that Ron is perpetuating more and more each day. There's something to this. The question is the what? Well, you heard my man, Billy, bring up Steven Montez's potential position flex. We know Ron loves his position flex, but you know what's even better than position flex? Commission flex. And one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, is the master of commission flex. And so if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. And yes, whereas Ron has his position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position
0: flex
2: Yes, Ron. You have position flex. John G has commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? Well, it's real simple. Not every home requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same commission? It's never made any sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together specific for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, i.e. commission flex, including, by the way, selling your home for free, as in zero commission. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar. And maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly. And there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin to sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. John Grandlin guarantees the sale of your home. Call him now. See what he can do for you. 703-703. 703-537-6747. 537 6747 Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you and you want to hear more about the commission flex that you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. John Grandlin is a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan as well. You can also check him out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. Dot com john grandland nobody will do a better job of selling your home and remember he is the master of commission flex position flex yes ron just like position flex well the nationals my friends are rising what it means where it takes us only time will tell but a 2021 national season that had not been going well at all now has some life, now has some juice. The Nationals won three or four games against the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park over the weekend. A 1-0 win on Friday night, a doubleheader split on Saturday, 5-1-7 inning loss on Saturday afternoon, but then a 6-2-7 inning win on Saturday evening, and then a 5-2 win on on Sunday afternoon, as yes, more than ever this season, Davey Martinez can be proud of his boys.
3: I'm proud of the boys.
2: And you should be, Davey. You should be. And I tweeted this out on Sunday, and I mean it. If the Nationals do end up contending this season, and who the heck knows, right? But if the Nationals do end up being a play a player in the National League playoff picture come September, I do believe we will look back upon this just-concluded 11-game homestand as the turning point. The Nats winning three or four games against the Mets wrapped up, yes, an 8-3 and three homestand for the Nats, who also, on the homestand, had a four-game split with the National League-leading San Francisco Giants, in addition to sweeping the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates. But take that Pirates series out of the mix for just a moment. Over the course of eight games, against two first place teams in the National League, the Nats went five and three. I mean, how about that? Four games split with the Giants, take three of four against the Mets. That is a terrific job by the Nats over those two series specifically and over the course of the 11 game homestand in general. The Nats took care of business against the Pirates. There's not a Nats fan on the planet who would not have signed up for eight and three going into this 11 game homestand. The Nats now have won nine of 12, The Nats now are 33 and 36. The Nats now are tied with the Atlanta Braves for third in the National League East, five games behind the Mets. The Nats are right in the thick of things in this division. And yes, the division has been underwhelming this season. There's no doubt about that. But whatever, the Nats are in the mix here despite all of the Nats' problems. And boy, do the Nats have problems this season. But despite all of those things, the Nats are right there right now. It was so great to see the Nats do as they did on this homestand because this homestand was the first homestand for which 100% capacity at Nationals Park has been permitted since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And truth be told, attendance numbers over the course of the 11-game homestand fluctuated, okay? There were some games at which the attendance was not good at all. I mean, especially over the course of the three games against the Pirates. That Nats 3-2 win over the Pirates at Nats Park this past Monday night, an official attendance of just fourteen thousand eight hundred fifty-nine. Now that's a Monday night against the lowly Pirates. I get that. I don't think that big of a deal should be made out of that. But you know, no one's really certain right now what kind of crowds teams are going to be getting here, right? I mean, it just it varies market to market. It varies situation to situation. Well, as if the baseball gods were smiling upon the Nats on Sunday afternoon, this five-two win to wrap up taking three or four from the Mets to wrap up the 8-3 homestand. The Nats for the first time this season crossed the 30,000 threshold. The official attendance for Sunday afternoon, 30,371. And the 30,000 plus at Nats Park were treated to something special. We will get to Baby Shark in a moment. But the something truly special on Sunday afternoon was Kyle Schwarber. Kyle freaking Schwarber. What a job by Schwarber over especially the final 2 games of this series and of this homestand. So Kyle Schwarber was an ad starting left fielder and number 1 batter in all 4 games against the Mets. He ended up hitting 5 home runs over the final 2 games of the series. He ended up hitting 9 home runs over the 11 game homestand. Check this out. Kyle Schwarber over the final 10 games of the homestand raised his slugging percentage for the season. By 114 points, his slugging percentage for the season went from 404 to 518 over the course of the final 10 games of this homestand. Nine home runs for Kyle Schwarber over the course of the homestand. It truly was one of the greatest homestands any Nationals player has ever had. And yes, it was a lengthy homestand, an 11-game homestand, but that's not the point. Kyle Schwarber is hitting out of his mind right now. You can always email me, the podcast at Yahoo.com. Email from Mike Puckett. The subject of the email is simply Kyle the Bull Schwarber. Email from Jerry Moore. Could a leadoff hitter be any hotter? I don't think so, Jerry. I don't think so. And that's the thing. Kyle Schwarber now is certifiably the National's every game leadoff batter. I don't want to hear any more about matchups. I don't want to hear any more about tinkering. No, Kyle Schwarber is now cemented as an Astros number one batter moving forward the rest of the season. Davey Martinez has had to mess with his lineups a ton so far this year. At the very least now, can we please settle on this? Schwarber in the one spot, Trey Turner in the two spot, Juan Soto in the three spot. Kyle Schwarber has killed it as an Astros leadoff batter here. Over these last few weeks. So with the five home runs, it all got going in game two of the doubleheader on Saturday. The 6-2-7 inning win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday evening. Schwarber in that game, two for four with two homers and four RBI. He had a leadoff homer on a bomb, a shore bomb, to left center field in the bottom of the first. The homer per stat cast going a projected 443 feet Schorber's second homer, a two out three run homer, in a Nats four run fourth on a shore bomb to right center field for a six nothing Nats lead. Then came the 5 2 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Schorber in that game, three for four with three homers and four RBI. The first two homers came off the Mets starter, Taiwan Walker, who entered the game having been excellent this season when it comes to avoiding the home run. Taiwan Walker came into that game on Sunday having allowed just 0.4 home runs per nine innings in 68 innings over 12 starts this season. So much for that. He got got by old Schwarber not once but twice. Schwarber smashed a leadoff opposite field homer to left field in the bottom of the first. That homer going a projected 418 feet per stat cast and that homer already Schwarber's fourth leadoff homer in a first inning this season. That ties him already for the second most first inning leadoff homers by a national in a season since the franchise came to D.C. The record is Alfonso Soriano's nine in the 2006 season. Schwarber's got a very good chance to get there. He's already at four in just basically a handful of games as the Nationals' number one batter. Schwarber then blasted a full count leadoff homer, that just got over the right field wall in the bottom of the fifth. And then came the biggest blow of game four. Kyle Schwarber, a one-out, two-run opposite field homer to left field of Mets reliever Jairus Familia in the bottom of the seventh inning. Schwarber taking a much-deserved curtain call. He has been otherworldly with what he's done here recently. And this homestand, I mean, I don't know how you do much better, realistically speaking. Nine home runs in 11 games. Your slugging percentage for the season over the final 10 games of the homestand goes up by, again, 114 points. That's lunacy when you think about it. And yet, that's exactly what ended up going down. Now, also, what went down on Sunday was, yes, the return of Baby Shark. The Nats on Sunday selecting the contract of Gerardo Para from AAA Rochester. This ends up essentially being a corresponding roster move to the Nats all the way back on Friday. Placing Andrew Stevenson on the 10 day injured list, retroactive to June 17th with an oblique strain. So, Para makes his 2021 Nats regular season debut in this 5 2 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. And again, as if the baseball gods were smiling down upon the Nats, Para delivered from the get go. His very first plate appearance for the Nats at the major league level this season, Para delivers a crucial extra base hit, a pinch. One out, opposite field double into the left field corner in the Nats' two-run seventh inning to drive the Mets starter Taiwan Walker out of the game. Para with the double, Schwarber then with the big two-run homer to give the Nats that 5-2 lead. Nationals Park erupted off Para hitting that double in a matter in which the stadium really had not erupted since the 2019 World Series. Look, I don't know where you stand on the whole baby shark song thing, okay? I'm personally not in love with it, but it's a fun, stupid little thing. It obviously became a big thing in 2019. If people enjoy it, let them enjoy it, okay? It doesn't have to be your thing for it to be a thing. This became something back in 2019. Nationals Park was playing it on Sunday afternoon as Parra made his way to the batter's box. It ended up being a situation where the song played for a while because we ended up having a mountain visit from the Mets catcher, James McCann, the crowd was into it. Para then made the crowd get into it even more with the double. And then the place became further unglued with that Kyle Schwarber home run. Take a listen to this, though. This was Para during his post game press conference on Sunday on how he felt with Baby Shark playing at Nationals Park again.
3: I'll be honest, almost cried. I almost cried. Um. See, I compared my first about in Big Lee and that one. I, I feel more like nervous right now. So my leg shake a little bit and happy. Happy to see all the stand the up and play dance a baby char. So I feel like a return to 2019 again. So, so happy it w- for that.
0: It was almost happy crying,
3: right? Yes, for sure. But like I say, it's um uh it's hard, it's hard because when I go to home play i try to see everybody and wait for take care of us because that's a lot of emotion in that moment.
0: What was the biggest emotion that you felt?
3: Uh, see all the fans happy. I think that's the more, the more important. The fans, are even kids and everybody enjoy that, that moment. It's, it's great to see that again.
2: Yeah, you can tell that meant a lot to Gerardo Parra. The Parra story really is something else. So the Nats this past February brought back Parra on a minor league contract off him having spent the 2020 season playing in Japan and off him having undergone right knee surgery this past fall. Of course, the story of Parra with the Nats in 2019 is an all-timer the Nats on May 9th, 2019, officially announced agreement with Para on a one-year contract off him having been designated for assignment by the San Francisco Giants on May 3rd, 2019. Para with the Giants in the 2019 regular season was brutal as a batter, although he had been good defensively for San Francisco. But Para in that 2019 season, what was his age 32 season, ended up being great For the Nats. And it wasn't just a gimmick thing. You know, like people remember Para in 2019 for the Baby Shark walk up music. Uh, It was Para, as you may recall, who started the Nats' great post home run dugout dancing. But Para was legitimately a contributor in 2019. This guy wasn't just some dancing gimmick. Gerardo Para in the 2019 regular season with the Nats slugged 447 over 204 plate appearances. Gerardo Porra in the 2019 regular season with the Nats posted the following slash line with runners in scoring position. Batting average of .373, on base percentage of .421, slugging percentage of .824. That's his slugging percentage. With runners at scoring position in the 2019 regular season with the Nets. Not his OPS, his slugging percentage, 824. He with the bases loaded in that 2019 regular season, smashed two grand slams. So this guy was legit. This guy was a contributor. This guy was a big spot performer. And we saw that again amazingly on Sunday afternoon with that one out pinch double and what ended up being a big two run seventh inning for the Nationals. Now, the Nats offense was alive over the final two games of this four-game series against the Mets, and thank goodness for that, because the first two games of this series were two more bad games for this Nationals offense, and they were two bad games despite the Mets starting two very underwhelming pitchers. Joey Lucchese was the Mets starting pitcher in the Nationals' 1-0 win on Friday night. Lucchese came into the game with an ERA of 518, An ERA plus of 75 over 33 innings this season, and yet he tossed five into third scoreless innings with five strikeouts. The Nats, yes, won on Friday night, but won despite scoring just one run on seven hits, all of which were singles. Worked three walks, went one for three with runners in scoring position, hit into three double plays. Then, in the Nats' 5 17 inning loss to the Mets on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader, The Nats, yes, drew seven walks in the game, but totaled just four hits, a double and three singles, went one for 10 with runners in scoring position. The Nats for the game left 10 men on base, and the Mets starting pitcher in that game was David Peterson, who came into the game with an ERA of 560 and an ERA plus of 69 over 53 innings this season, and yet Peterson allowed one run in four and two-thirds innings with six strikeouts. So games one and two in this series drove you nuts if you're a Nats fan from a standpoint of the underwhelming offense this season. But offense ended up being much better as the series went on. Nats in their 6-2-7 inning win over the Mets on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader, scored six runs on 10 hits into walk, went two of five with runners in scoring position, and the 10 hits were comprised of three homers, two doubles, and five singles. And then in this 5-2 win on Sunday afternoon, Nats drew just one walk but had 13 hits, three homers, three doubles, and seven singles, and the Nats got to a really good Mets starting pitcher in Taiwan Walker. He entered the game with an ERA at 212, an ERA plus of 184, but Walker on Sunday gave up four runs in six into third innings. That's a really good job by the Nats of getting to a very good pitcher this season in Walker. And the truth is things could have been a lot worse because the Nats did struggle with runners in scoring position on Sunday, ultimately went to 2 of 14 with runners in scoring position in the game. Trey Turner, had a good series, including a monster day on Saturday. Trey was the Nat starting shortstop and number two batter in all four games in the series. He went seven for 14 with a homer. Yes, a homer, I said, a double, five singles, and a walk. And I make a big deal out of the homer because it had been forever since Trey Turner had hit a homer. But in that 6-2, 7-inning win over the Mets on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader, Trey two for three with a solo homer and a single. Two-out solo homer on a shot to left field in the bottom of the third inning. The home run, Trey's first since a 7-3 Nats loss at the Chicago Cubs all the way back on May 17th. That game on Saturday, that was June 19th. Trey's previous home run had come On May 17th. That is a long while to go without hitting a home run. And yet, Trey delivered there in that spot there on Saturday evening. And then, in the earlier game on Saturday, the game one of the doubleheader, the 5 1, 7 inning loss, Trey in that game had three of the Nats, four hits. He had a double and a couple of singles. And the double was something else a two out full count double that concluded an 11 pitch plate appearance in which he was down in the count at one point. 0-2 0-2 in the Nats' one-run fifth inning. Juan Soto had an interesting weekend. Got on base a ton. I give him credit for that. But he continues to hit for, like, no power. You know, you think about The Nats are doing well right now. Where would the Nats be? How much better might the Nats be doing if Juan Soto was truly Juan Soto? Now, again, he got on base a lot over the course of this series. He was the Nats' starting right fielder and number three batter in all four games. He went five for 11 with a double four singles and four walks. It's hard to complain about that, but just one extra base hit over the four games. In fact, Soto ended up having just one extra base hit over the 11 games of the homestand. Soto over the 11-game homestand, nine for 34 with a double, eight singles, and six walks. Again, getting on base, but he's not hitting for like any power. Juan Soto, as we speak on this Monday, has the following slash line this season. Batting average of .276, okay on-base percentage of 4.06. That's excellent. But a slugging percentage of just 4.32. That's it. His slugging is almost the same as his on-base. Not supposed to work that way. And I'll tell you something else with Juan Soto. He has hit into way too many double plays this season. It happened again in the 6-2-7 inning win over the Mets on Saturday evening in Game 2 of the doubleheader. Soto in that game grounding into a 1-6-3 double play for the first two outs of the bottom of the first for his 11th double play of the season, matching his total for all of the 2019 regular season. How is that possible? That Soto already this season has hit into as many double plays as he hit into in all of the 2019 regular season, and yet it's happened. Way too many of Soto's batted balls have been hit onto the ground this year. He's still not elevating nearly enough. He did make a nice defensive play in the series. In game two of the doubleheader Saturday evening, so Soto, a nice sliding forward catch in shallow right center field to Rob Francisco Lindor of a hit for the first out in the top of the fourth. Speaking of good defense, I loved what we continued to see from the Nats catchers in this series. Jan Gomes and Alex Avila continued to throw out runners trying to steal at such a great clip. Gomes in the one nothing win over the Mets on Friday night throughout not one but two would-be base stealers for the Mets. Gunned down Mason Williams on an attempted steal of second base for the first out and the top of the third. Then threw out Luis Guillorme on an attempted steal of second base for the first out and the top of the fifth. Gomes now on the season 14 of 34 on runners trying to steal and then Alex Avila, he was the Nats' starting catcher for just one game in this series. The 5-1-7 inning loss on Saturday afternoon in Game 1 of the doubleheader. He threw out Guillaume on an attempt to steal a second base on a strike em out throw him out double play for the first two outs in the top of the seventh to improve to 5-for-12 on runners trying to steal this season. So Gomes and Davila this year, a remarkable 19-for-46 on runners trying to steal nearly 50%. That is outstanding. What a job those two have done when it comes to controlling opposing teams running games this season. And Gomes had one of the bigger hits in the series, the one nothing win over the Mets on Friday night. Jan Gomes had the walk-off single off the Mets closer Edwin Diaz in the bottom of the ninth inning. Now, speaking of that inning, Ryan Zimmerman, he was an that starting first baseman in just one game in this series. That game on Friday night, he was a cleanup batter in that game. He went two for four with a couple of singles, but his second single was so big. An opposite field full count single off Diaz in that Nationals one-run ninth inning Despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2, Juan Soto on that single, advancing from first to third on what ended up being a hit and run uh, that was put on by Davey Martinez, who sent Soto due to Diaz being so slow to the plate. Now, look, Zimmerman's offensive numbers have really calmed down in recent weeks. He, in that game on Friday night, grounded into a killer 5-4-3 double play on a 3-1 pitch with runners on first and second, one out and the game scoreless in the bottom of the six. But that was some piece of hitting by Zimmerman on that single off Diaz in the bottom of the ninth inning. Josh Bell was an ad-starting first baseman, a number four batter in games, two, three, and four in the series. He only went two at ten, had a double, a single, and a walk in the series. Uh did have an RBI single in the five-two win on Sunday afternoon. One out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third. Josh Harrison continues to struggle. For the Nats, he was the starting second baseman in games 1, 2, and 4 in the series. 1 for 10 with a single, no walks, and 5 strikeouts. Harrison's OPS for the season has dropped by 120 points since the start of games on May 25th. From 8.37 8.37 to now seven seventeen, We saw some Luis Garcia at second base in this series. He was in that starting second baseman, a number six batter, in that 6-2 win over the Mets on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader. Nats on Sunday, option Garcia, back to A Syracuse. A lot of roster maneuvering for the Nats in recent days, in part because Sterling Castro was back in this series. The Nats on Friday activated Castro off the restricted list on which they had placed him on the previous Wednesday. David Martinez on that Wednesday in a pregame press conference saying that Castro had some, quote, family matters, end quote, to which he needed To attend, so we saw Castro as an ad starting third baseman over the final three games of this series against the Mets. Jordy Mercer was a starting third baseman in game number one, and Victor Robles continues to be out there every game as a center fielder. continues to hit for no power. This is an underrated aspect of the national season. What has happened to Victor Robles' power? We've talked so much about Juan Soto and his lack of power this season. But consider this with Victor Robles. So in this series against the Mets, he's that at starting center fielder and number eight batter in all four games, three for 11 with three singles and two walks. Victor Robles on the season actually has an on-base percentage of 343, which is pretty good. But his batting average for the year is just 231, and his slugging percentage for the season is just 314, and he has yet to hit a home run this season. Victor Robles in the 2019 regular season hit 17 homers. He has zero homers so far this year and nobody knows why. Uh, It's remarkable what's happened here. Victor Robles is like regressing as a batter. Now, like I said, he is getting on base and he's drawing some walks this year. It's not just a bunch of hit by pitches. So I don't want to just completely dismiss Robles and what he's been as a batter this season, but he clearly has not been very good and zero home runs this season. That really is something when you think about it. So that was the deal with the Nats from a position player standpoint over the course of the four games against the Mets. But here's the deal. In a lot of ways, the takeaway from not just the series against the Mets, but this 11-game homestand overall is the Nats pitching. Which ended up being so good over the course of the eleven-game homestand, the starting pitching very good in this series against the Mets in three of the four games. Eric Fetty in the one-nothing win on Friday night, seven scoreless innings on six strikeouts versus two hits, both of which were singles, and four walks, one of which was intentional on a hundred pitches. The outing gave Fetty yes twenty consecutive scoreless innings. Now the rise of Fetty this season is, I think, the single best individual player development. The fact that Eric Fetty in 2021 is finally blossoming into the pitcher he was drafted to be when the Nats took him with the number 18 overall pick in the 2014 MLB draft is such a great and encouraging development for the Nats, not just for this season, but long term. And, you know, with Fetty, remember, he missed about a month due to getting COVID-19, despite having been vaccinated. Remember, he had to make three attempts at a single rehab start for the High A Wilmington Blue Rocks due to the first two attempts being rained out. Eric Fetty has had a lot of bad luck over the course of his major league career. He's been jerked between being a starter and a reliever. It just feels like there's been this dark cloud over him in a lot of ways. And, you know, truth be told, he hasn't always pitched very well. But Fetty this season really seems to be coming into his own. Eric Fetty now on the year has an ERA of 3.33 over 10 starts, but even that doesn't tell the whole story because Eric Fetty, as you may remember, got rocked in his first start this season: six runs, five earned, in one and two thirds innings in a 7-6 seven-inning Nats loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in Game One of a doubleheader on April 7th. Since then, Eric Fetty, over nine starts this year, has an ERA of 2.54. So you have the 20 consecutive scoreless innings, but you also have now an ERA of 254 for Fetty over his last nine starts. What a job Eric Fetty is doing. And like I said, this is so big in so many ways. You think about Max Scherzer going into free agency. You think about the uncertainty with the health of Steven Strasburg. You think about, I think, still the uncertainty of where Patrick Corbin is at in his career. John Lester is only on a one-year contract. If Fetty is becoming a stud, in your rotation, or at the very least, like a reliable pitcher in your rotation. Awesome that that's taking place. Joe Ross provided the lone bad start for the Nationals in this series. 5-1, 7-inning loss on Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader. Uh, We got mostly bad Joe Ross in this game, although that did come with a few caveats. You know, Joe Ross is like the Rex Grossman of the Nats rotation. There was good Rex, bad Rex for Washington in the 2011 season. There's good Ross, bad Ross for the Nats in this 2021 season. So Ross on Saturday afternoon, five runs in five innings on six hits, including two homers, a double. And three singles. He did, though, have five strikeouts versus no walks. Did throw 50 of his 67 pitches for strikes, although he did issue a hit by pitch. So it wasn't all bad, but there was too much bad, especially when it came to Ross facing the Mets shortstop, Francisco Lindor, who almost single handedly handed Ross the loss in this game. Ross gave up a two run homer to Lindor in the top of the first, gave up a one out RBI single to Lindor in the top of the third, and gave up a one out two run homer to Lindor. In the top of the fifth. Now, also with Ross in this game was him getting worked, believe it or not, by the Mets starting pitcher David Peterson. Ross hit Peterson with a pitch to begin the Mets one-run third, and then gave up a leadoff double to Peterson to begin the Mets two-run fifth. So it wasn't as simple as Lindor dooming Ross, but Lindor certainly played a big role in Ross giving up again five runs in five innings on Saturday afternoon. But then came John Lester in a nightcap of the doubleheader split, that 6-2-7 inning win. And Lester was very good. Two runs in six innings on six strikeouts versus seven hits, a homer, two doubles and four singles and no walks on 100 pitches. And it was a shame that Lester gave up the two runs because he actually tossed six scoreless innings before giving up two runs to begin the top of the seventh inning on a leadoff first pitch single by Tomas Nito and a two-run homer by Jose Peraza. Davey stuck with Lester when Davey probably should not have stuck with Lester. But still, two runs in six innings. Lester's ERA for the season now is at 396 over 10 starts. You take that in a heartbeat if you're a Nats fan, especially given how much Lester struggled over the last two seasons with the Chicago Cubs. Now look, Lester puts a lot of guys on base his whip for the season is at 144. That is a sizable whip, but Lester is very good when it comes to as they say minimizing the damage. And Lester will put guys on base, but he's able to work his way out of jams and that's what that 3.96 ERA speaks to. He is a crafty veteran as the phrase goes and Lester was good again in that outing on Saturday evening and then Patrick Corbin in the 5-2 win on Sunday afternoon. Good for a second consecutive start. Now, I am not here to say that Patrick Corbin has been fixed. I still want to see more. We still need to see more. However, the fact that he's been good each of his last two outings clearly is encouraging. Patrick Corbin on Sunday afternoon, two runs in six innings on seven strikeouts versus four hits, which were two homers and two singles and a walk on 85 pitches. A solid outing for Corbin. This is the Patrick Corbin we came to know in 2019, he gave up two homers, but each homer was a leadoff homer, so you only give up two runs over the two homers. A uh, leadoff homer to Kevin Pillar in the top of the second, leadoff homer to Pete Alonso on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the seventh. And this outing for Corbin on Sunday was off what he did in his last outing. 8-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park last Tuesday night. Corbin in that game, one run, eight into third innings on seven strikeouts. Now, the Pirates are atrocious, so you didn't know how much stock to put into that game. The Mets are a lot better, and Corbin was still good against New York in this game on Sunday afternoon. So got to see more, but Corbin now maybe, possibly, is trending in the right direction here. Very good to see this. If Corbin's coming around and Eric Fetty is rising and John Lester is pitching to the tune of a sub-4 ERA, yeah, you know what? Maybe you don't need Steven Strasburg in order to contend this season. I mean, I felt like Strasbourg coming into the season was the number one wild card for the Nats in 2021. I still feel that way, but maybe just maybe it doesn't have to be that big of a deal what happens with Strasburg if all of these other guys are right. I mean, I think it's asking a lot for all of these other guys to be right, but right now it feels like that that is more of a possibility than we previously thought. Also, the Nats bullpen Outstanding over the course of the 11 game homestand and especially good in this series against the Mets. Nats relievers over the four games combined for eight scoreless innings. Hard to do better than that. Eight scoreless innings. Uh, Nats on Friday reinstated Austin Voth from the 10 day injured list, which he'd been on. Since June 8th, retroactive to June 7th due to a fractured nose. So it's good to have both back in the mix. one nothing win on Friday night. Two Nats relievers combined for two perfect innings. Kyle Finnegan, perfect top of the 8th. Brad Hand, perfect top of the ninth on six pitches. 5 inning loss to the Mets on Saturday afternoon in Game 1 of the doubleheader. Two Nats relievers combined for two scoreless innings. Austin Voth, a scoreless top of the 6th. Ryan Harper, a perfect top of the 7th. I did think it was a shame that the Nats had to use two relievers to close out the 6-2-7 inning win over the Mets on Saturday evening in Game 2 of the doubleheader. Wander Suero entered the game off the Mets, scoring those two runs off John Lester in the top of the seven. Suero gave up a double to the first battery-faced Albert Almora on an 0-2 pitch, then recorded two outs, but then issued a two-out-five pitch walk of Luis Guillorme. And so Brad Hand entered the game with runners at the corners and two outs in the bottom of the seventh through one pitch and got himself the save as the pitch resulted in a game-ending force out. But I still didn't like the fact that you had to use two different relievers to close out a game in which you were up 6-2. Suero really should have been able to complete that game, uh, did not. But Hand only has to throw the one pitch to end things. And then three Nats relievers in a 5-2 win on Sunday afternoon combined for three perfect innings. Kyle Finnegan entered the game in the top of the seventh with the runner on first, but got three outs on five pitches, a 5-3 double play off the bat of pinch hitter Dominic Smith and a three-pitch strikeout of pinch hitter Billy McKinney. Tanner Rainey tossed a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts to continue his resurgence. Rainey now six scoreless and hitless innings over his last six appearances of his ERA ballooning to 10.57 in allowing three runs in the bottom of the six in that 12-6 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on June 6th in that bullpen game, as you may remember, for the Nats. And then Brad Hand continued to roll, a perfect top of the ninth that included a 6 pitch strikeout of James McCann. Hand now is allowed just two earned runs in 14 and a third innings over his last 14 appearances. The Nats are rolling. There's still a lot of work to be done here, but it's so nice to have the Nats in a much better place. Nats are off on Monday, then have a two-game series At the Philadelphia Phillies, so you go from one big intra-division series to another. Game 1, Tuesday night at 7.05, Max Scherzer will start. Game 2, Wednesday afternoon, one oh five. Eric Fetty will start.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: So we had something that happened with the Washington football team on Friday that became kind of a thing on Saturday. And I wanted to talk about that thing with you right now. The news had to do with the name. Yes, the issue of the name. Our team is the team with no name. What is the permanent name going to be? The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO, on Friday issued a refusal of the Washington football team's attempt to trademark the name Washington football team on clothing. The USPTO issued the refusal based in large part on Washington football team being too close to Washington football club, which has already been trademarked. More on that in a bit. But I know for me, the first question that came to mind from all of this was, well, is the Washington football team attempting to trademark Washington football team for simply the short term or the long term? I.e., is this a sign that the Washington football team wants to permanently be the Washington football team? Of course, it would not be stunning at all if the Washington football team is eyeing Washington football team as the permanent name. The team president, Jason Wright, has floated Washington football team as potentially being the permanent name multiple times. It's become impossible to ignore that. You may recall this past April, Washington football team season ticket holders received a variety of versions of a survey from the team pertaining to the name. The surveys asked for season ticket holders to pick their two most preferred names from lists of potential names. Did make it clear that the names on the list were not final candidates for the permanent name. And there were a bunch of just atrocious name selections, as you may recall. We had the likes of Washington Aviators, Washington Beacons, Washington Belters, Washington Wayfarers, Washington Ambassadors, Washington Griffins, Washington Rising, Washington Swifts, Washington Rubies. I mean, it was just one awful name after another, but also among the potential names were a bunch of soccer like names along the lines of Washington football team. We had First City Football Club, FC, FC. We had Washington DC Football Club, DC, FC. We had Washington Capital City Football Club, CC, FC. And all of that seemed to be another sign of, you know what, Washington football team is a legitimate contender. Now, as I have said, I have no problem with Washington football team as a temporary name. I have a big problem with Washington football team or something like it as a permanent name. And I don't at all get this fixation with making the permanent name a soccer-like name. Uh, Why are people into naming the team after a soccer team? What is that about? Like, where is that coming from exactly? That to me is very odd. And I have nothing against soccer. I'm not some soccer hater. But soccer is soccer. Football, American football, not football, but football, that's football. They're two different sports. I know that Jason Wright is a big soccer fan and may well want a soccer-like name as the Washington football team's permanent name. I don't care. I couldn't care less about what other sports Jason Wright is into. Jason Wright just got here five minutes ago, okay? The Washington football team ultimately needs a name, a real name. Pick a name. It's not that hard. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's also not such an impossibility that you should just quit. You should just tap out on things and just say, eh, we'll just call the team some version of Washington. Anyway, it turns out that the team attempting to trademark Washington football team may not be a sign of anything. And I was happy to see this. What was not reported nearly enough, and this is always why you have to dig deep on the details because you can't just trust what is reported out there. But The Washington football team's attempt to trademark Washington football team, do you know when that was actually filed? That was filed last July, July 2020. And that to me is telling, right? July 2020 was right when the name change started. The timeline, just to refresh your memory, is as follows. July 2nd, 2020, FedEx issued the short but seismic statement, quote, We have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name, end quote. That was, of course, the first public sign of the Fred Smith heel turn on Dan Snyder and of the massive ownership turmoil uh, that ultimately now has resulted in Dan Snyder buying out the three former disgruntled minority investors. The next day, July 3rd, 2020, the team issued a statement that led with the following. In light of recent events around our country and feedback from our community, the Washington Redskins are announcing the team will undergo a thorough review of the team's name. End quote. July 13th, 2020, the team announced that it would be retiring the Redskins name and logo. And then July 23rd, 2020, the team announced that it would call itself the Washington football team. Pending adoption of a new name. So it makes sense that the team in July 2020 started the attempt to trademark Washington football team. And the team doing so to me isn't necessarily a sign that Washington football team is what the team wants to go with as a permanent name. July 2020 clearly is long before we got deep into the process of the permanent name. And how about this? Just consider the following this ruling was issued. Until this past Friday. So the Washington football team started the process to trademark Washington football team in July 2020. This ruling isn't issued until June 2021, 11 months later. Like, take your time, USPTO. Geez, I mean, I know there was a COVID 19 pandemic. Maybe that's the reason, but good God, 11 months? Really? Anyway, here's the other part of all this that's interesting to me. So the USPTO made this decision based on a man having successfully trademarked Washington Football Club years earlier. That man is Virginia realtor Philip McCauley. He's actually gotten some press attention over the last year. Philip McCauley in 2014, in an effort to, let's just say it, squat on a number of potential new names for the Redskins, were they to ever change their name, filed to trademark a number of potential names for the Skins. And then in 2015, he made and sold clothing to satisfy what are called use in commerce provisions, which, and this is what's so funny about this, are meant to prevent people from doing exactly as McCauley has done. McCauley in May 2015 was awarded the trademarks, including one for Washington Football Club. So this guy, McCauley, is the guy standing in the way of the Washington football team, trademarking Washington football team for clothing, although he's not the only impediment. I'll address that in just a bit. But, you know, there's no mystery as to why this guy, McCauley, is doing this. And let me make clear, you're allowed to do what Philip McCauley has done. But, I mean, no one is being fooled by this. He's not doing this because he legitimately wanted these trademarks. He did this for, as Jay Gruden said many years ago about Kirk Cousins, the money.
0: I think it's all about, probably all about the money, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's all about the money, I guess. I mean, Macaulay said, hey, at some point, the Redskins may well end up needing to change their name. So why don't I trademark a bunch of potential names for the team? And then one day, maybe, just maybe, old Donnie boy will come calling and we can strike a big fat seven-figure deal and I'll be a Richie Rich out of all this. Macaulay's attorney, Darren Heitner, has made it clear that McCauley is willing to discuss an arrangement with the Washington football team, i.e. money.
0: I think it's all about, probably all about the money, I guess.
2: Yes, thank you, Jay. It's all about the money. And again, what McCauley has done is legal, but I certainly would say it is, if not sketchy, I mean, I don't know if sketchy is the right word, but it is disingenuous, okay? This is clearly a money grab. You're allowed to do what McCauley did, But this is not some instance of, you know, some longtime mom and pop shop that goes by the name Washington Football Team or Washington Football Club. And oh, golly gee, now the big bad wolf that is Dan Snyder wants this trademark. No, this is a guy who saw an opportunity. He made a play, you know, basically put down multiple bets on, hey, at some point the team is probably or even just maybe going to have to change its name. So let me squat on a bunch of potential trademarks here. And it may well end up paying off for this guy. You know, we'll see. But I mean, I don't look at him as, as some hero or anything like that. He's doing this for the money, point blank, period. So we'll see what ends up happening with this. I don't know if you're Dan Snyder, if you're in the mood to be pl- paying Philip McCauley, whatever it's going to take to be able to use the trademarks as you want. Uh, there are some legal avenues by which Washington could still come out on top in this situation. You know, all this stuff gets very tedious, and I, I don't want to like put people to sleep here, but. It's not necessarily that the Washington football team is done now when it comes to potentially trademarking Washington football team, but it is not easy. It is an uphill climb. And to that end, there are two other aspects of the USPTO's ruling that are notable. One, the USPTO also noted in its ruling that there are two pending trademark filings for Washington team footballers and that those two trademark filings going through could cause a further refusal of the Washington football team trademark. So while it may primarily be what this guy Philip McCauley has done, it's not just all about McCauley. Two pending trademark filings for Washington team footballers could stand in the way of the Washington football team being able to trademark Washington football team for clothing. And there's also this, and, and this is pretty funny actually. The USPTO also based its ruling on Washington football team being primarily geographically descriptive, which basically means that the USPTO feels that the name Washington football team is unoriginal and doesn't mean much, you know, basically like, hey, your name isn't really even a name. It's not something we even feel like we need to trademark because it's not a name. It's just saying the football team based in Washington, D.C., which I think is hysterical because the USPTO in that regard is 100% right. It isn't a name. It's not a real name. It shouldn't be the permanent name. But even if the Washington football team wants to go with Washington football team as the permanent name, doing so does not appear as if it will be easy. Well, I know that many of you wish that the name of the team was still the Skins. When it comes to your skin, ain't nobody better. Then Dr. George Verghese, one of the great supporters of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special And cutting edge superficial radiation therapy or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non surgical option. In SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301 396 3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com that's midatlanticskin.com Dr. George Verghese in the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid Atlantic region All right so a very interesting article came out on Saturday on Hogs Haven which as many of you listening know is the SB Nation site for the Washington football team the headline for the article a closer look at When Ryan Fitzpatrick Performs Best. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, the author of the article, a man who goes by the name Kyle Smith for GM. He is asked to remain anonymous. I am honoring that request. He is a man of mystery, but he's a man who knows his stuff. I appreciate you coming on. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. So before we get going here, like, is there anything you can tell us about yourself? Just like how old you are, how you got involved in writing for Hogshaven, anything like that?
4: Yeah, I'm in my mid 40s. Um, I've been, you know, writing for Hogshaven now, first just, you know, as a, as a fan, and then eventually got invited to be one of the contributing uh, authors. And I've really enjoyed it. It's a great group of folks there, uh, both the writers and the commenters. Um, and it's just, uh, to me, it's an exciting platform to sort of be able to explore fandom, you know, for a team that hasn't had a lot of upside uh in the past couple years i mean i'm excited now but it's been an opportunity to sort of look at how uh good teams are run and try to hope for a day when that would happen in washington as well and it seems like maybe we're getting close
2: yes hopefully uh very much so well i enjoyed reading your piece on ryan fitzpatrick as i've enjoyed reading other things that you've written what would you say was your goal in or reason for writing this article
4: Well, I've been a big fan of trying to bring Ryan to Washington, um, you know, since the off, or since the last season ended, because one of the reasons is I, I think, you know, he's an interesting quarterback. He's obviously not a superstar, but I think he's a good enough quarterback that when you've got a team built like this one is built around him, that he has the capacity to play well. And I was really concerned, like some other folks were, that we were going to, you know, use a huge amount of draft capital to trade up for for a rookie or maybe to spend several first round picks on trying to get one of the vets who was on the trade block. And I felt like Ryan gave us some time to continue to to improve the team um, and also be competitive. I mean, obviously we don't want to just tank, you know, to try to get our next quarterback, but I think he's a good blend. And, And this article and the other articles I've written about him have been really trying to explore, you know, his maturation as a quarterback over his career and what he brings to the table and what his shortcomings are.
2: So before we do more on the article, you raised something that I think has been so interesting about this offseason, and I've talked about it on a podcast, and that is essentially Washington zigging while others are zagging in a time in which so many teams right, are giving up so much in the way of draft capital to take potential franchise quarterbacks, not even definite franchise quarterbacks. Washington gives a one-year, $10 million contract to a guy in Fitzpatrick who, yes, is going into his age 39 season, but who also, yes, is coming off some really impressive seasons in recent years. And it seems to me, and I know Ron has talked about this, Washington has almost like exploited a market inefficiency in doing this, where a guy like Fitzpatrick, you know, every few years is changing teams, but you can get potentially really good quarterback play on this cheap contract. You did not have to give up anything in the way of draft capital. No, it's not a long-term solution, but I think we could actually look back on this as a really smart move by Washington, especially if Washington wasn't really in love with any of the realistically available young quarterbacks out there to try to get this offseason.
4: Yeah, I agree. Totally. Um, Earlier in the offseason, Ron did an interview with Chris Collinsworth where he talked a bit about this in terms of his approach to the QB position. And I I wrote an article. um, I think I called it something like, you know, did Ron crack the QB code? Um, Because, like you say, he's zigging where others are zagging. I mean, this strategy of trying to take a high uh, first round pick on a quarterback, you know, of course, it works some well sometimes i mean it worked great for pat mahomes it seems like it's probably going to work for uh justin herbert and and in other cases i mean you can point to those cases but the number of times it fails um far outstrips the time it succeeds and even you know if you do happen to get a great rookie um the the chances that they're going to have success in their first year are very very slim i think i went back and looked at one point and like russell wilson was the last rookie quarterback who had who got to the playoffs in his rookie season. And that's of course because a lot of rookie quarterbacks are coming onto bad teams. But but this issue who, you know, I think we we don't really have a good separation of how much does a bad team affect whether or not the quarterback succeeds versus, you know, how much is a transcendent talent going to be able to pull a team out. I mean, even Mahomes came onto a playoff team. You know, that was a team Alex had taken to the playoffs uh the year before and Alex couldn't get them any further than the first round. But he came onto a Mahomes came onto a good team as opposed to most rookie quarterbacks.
2: Yeah, it's a terrific point. So one of the things that you get into in the article is Fitzpatrick's history with Chan Gailey. What do you make of that history?
4: Well, I wasn't really that well aware of it, frankly, until I had heard this interview on NFL radio earlier in the week. And and I went back and looked. And, I mean, they've got a very, very close relationship, as you can tell in the article. I mean, they've been on three different teams together. Um, Gailey obviously has a huge amount of confidence in Fitzpatrick. And I think Fitzpatrick has a lot of respect for the, the extent to which Gailey has let him um, perform. And, you know, I, I also don't think Gailey has any kind of um, unrealistic uh, sense of what Fitzpatrick is capable of. I mean, he respects him a lot as a player, but he also knows he has some, some shortcomings in terms of being a little bit too um, free with the football sometimes. But but I I guess I believe at some level that Fitzpatrick is a smart enough guy that if Scott Turner and uh, Ron Rivera are talking to him about, you know, don't you don't have to try to put this team on your back, you know, be sensible in terms of how you're playing. I think he'll uh, absorb that message and maybe play a little bit more conservative game that doesn't lead him to, to melt down uh, on occasion.
2: The high point of the article, at least for me, was you pointing out how Fitzpatrick has tended to have his best seasons in terms of ESPN's total QBR stat when quarterbacking teams with good defenses. Uh, I had not seen that before. That's a pretty fascinating reality with Fitzpatrick. Uh, of course, you have causation and you have correlation, right? Like maybe it's just matching up that he's having these great seasons in which his teams have good defenses, or maybe it is because those teams had good defenses that he had his best seasons. Can you sort of ascertain, like, is it because of the defenses that Fitzpatrick did well? Is it more just coincidence that Fitzpatrick did well in those seasons with those teams with good defenses?
4: Yeah, you bring up a great point. And I actually Debated whether or not I was going to bring that up in the article. I figured I'd have to, I'd end up having to bring it up in the comments because there's folks who are savvy enough to point that out. Um, and I, I can't be sure, but what I can, uh, you know, look at again is that uh, Fitzpatrick, for the past three years, has had among his best seasons, and and for two of those years, he really did have pretty crappy defenses, uh, first in Tampa Bay and then in uh, Miami before uh, this last season. And so he's been on an upward trajectory there. And I think you know, in listening to the view in terms of some of the things Gailey talked about, he really was pointing out that, um, you know, Fitzpatrick, when he was in that Jets, um, offense on the 2015 team where you had Todd Bowles who was you know who, who basically is a defensive mastermind and was really defensively focused um, thrived you know he, he wasn't always having to, to um, play hero ball to win he had a solid defense and that gave him a certain level of confidence where he could um, play well um, I do reference in the article too that the, the final game of that season where they lost to the Bills I mean it was a case where the, the, the team got down 14 nothing fairly early on in the game to the Bills and again you know he basically was put in the role of putting the team on his back and he ended up throwing three interceptions in the uh, final 10 minutes of the game or 11 minutes of the game and um, you know the team fell short but it's I really do uh, think that there is this connection where if he's feeling the more comfortable he's feeling and the less he's feeling like he really is going to have to make uh, difficult throws or, or a hero play hero ball um, that he's going to you know, he's going to be a more effective quarterback.
2: He ranks in the top 10 in QBR each of the last two seasons. That's a pretty surprising thing, I think, to people who aren't aware of that. Do you think that overstates what he's been? Or has he, in fact, been this good the last two years, playing at a top 10 level, at least statistically?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Again, one of the things that's really frustrating about last season is that he he played so intermittently. I mean, he did start the first six... Uh, games of the season and he played a few games later on in the season but you know they were trying to get Tua started and and really ended up pulling him so there just wasn't a consistency there that you could see um, you know whether or not this was really for real or not but but I think, you know, again, I, I do feel like he's playing his best football now. And and to me, that makes sense. I mean, he's, he's had a very long career. Somebody said, and I, I don't know this, if this is true or not, but that he has essentially like the, the most yards of, uh, of a quarterback never to have gotten into the playoffs and, you know, all these other kinds of benchmarks for a career. Um, and, and actually, he's just had some really rotten luck. Um, when the Dolphins missed the playoffs this past year at 10 and 6, it was the first time a team that was 10 and 6 had missed the playoffs since 2015 when his Jets missed the playoffs. So, you know, it's, um, I don't think it's that he's a, a bad quarterback by any stretch of the imagination, but he certainly has limitations. But I think, you know, this team, this Washington team, is built so well around him. We finally got some offensive weapons. I'm, I'm really excited to see what he can do this year.
2: We're talking Ryan Fitzpatrick and Washington football team quarterback situation with Kyle Smith for GM of Hogs Haven. Does Fitzpatrick's age matter to you? I mean, I mentioned him going into his age 39 season. We do see quarterbacks just fall off the cliff at times. We also have seen in recent seasons, right, quarterbacks play so well in their late 30s, if not 40s, albeit, you know, these are all-time greats, you know, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, et cetera. Do you think Fitzpatrick's age is a reason to be concerned for the upcoming season or not really?
4: Not really. I mean, if you think about it, he is a quarterback with relatively little wear and tear for 38, 39 on his body. Um, And, you know, I guess my feeling is I thought when they signed him, maybe they'd sign him to a two year contract or something like that. But I I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that he could play for another two or three years, um, you know, if he's still got the love of the game. And I honestly think, you know, he went, he retired, he came out of retirement to be on this team. I think he sees what's going on here and what Ron Rivera's got started. And I think he, you know, this is a guy who probably, you know, he could he could really cap off what has been a kind of up and down career, with some with one or two good seasons, and I think change sort of the the public perception of him in people's mind. If you can make it happen,
2: yeah, I was going to ask you about you know it's a one year contract. It doesn't mean that he's here for just the one season. And I'm with you. I, th- I think it could be longer than just the one season. What about the other primary quarterbacks on the roster, and especially the way that Ron Rivera has been talking recently? I mean, it's it's hard to ignore this. Ron keeps bringing up a quarterback competition. He very interestingly is not mentioning Kyle Allen. In the competition, it's all about Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. Do you buy that there is a path by which Heineke could be Washington's starting quarterback in Week One?
4: I think so. I mean, I think Ron was sincere when he said that one of his regrets from last season was not making Dwayne Haskins compete for the role. I think he, you know, I feel like he's learned from that. Do I think that? Uh, Fitzpatrick has the odds on going into the competition, sure. But I do think he's going to give Heineke uh, the chance to compete. I think all of us know, though, that the issue with Heineke really is, can he stay healthy? Um, I, you, you've got to love that performance he put up against the Bucks in the playoffs. I mean, it was just so full of heart. But the, the question is, again, um, can he stay healthy for a several-game stretch? Uh, but I think, you know, I think Ron again, loves the guy's heart and is going to give him the chance to show what he's got. Uh, But I also think that Ron... You know that eighty-five Bears team. I think he's learned a lot from that, and you know he compared. Well, he's compared some of the quarterbacks to uh, Jim McMahon on that team, and I think he recognized the value of of veteran leadership on a team that's otherwise, you know, uh, incredibly
2: well built. Yeah, and you brought up Ron's appearance on the Chris Collinsworth podcast, and Ron in that interview and elsewhere has mentioned Nick Foles and how Foles made a Super Bowl, and you can tell he feels like. You know, if Foles could do it, then why can't a Fitzpatrick do it? And of course, it's not just Foles in recent seasons, but like Jimmy Garoppolo made a Super Bowl. Jared Goff made a Super Bowl. You know, these are not great elite franchise quarterbacks. And I don't know that Ron will come out and say it, but I think he feels like if things go well, Fitzpatrick is more than capable of putting together a season in which the team makes a, you know, if not Super Bowl run, then a decent playoff run.
4: Yeah, no, I agree. I think you know when we talk about Super Bowl quarterbacks, especially in the past twenty years, our our view is so skewed by Tom Brady. I mean, you know, you think about the number of Super Bowls that guy has won and or been at, and it's it's just so lopsided. But there are a lot of players who either made it to the Super Bowl or who who have uh, won Super Bowls who aren't. You know, who are not Hall of Fame quarterbacks? Trent Dilfer, I mean, we could probably argue about Eli Manning. I mean, if he hadn't won the Super Bowls, he, he almost certainly wouldn't be a, a Hall of Fame uh, discussion quarterback. Um, you know, others like you say, Jared Goff, Garoppolo, um, who've made it there and who've just narrowly lost. Th- those are guys who are, again, I call them sort of good enough, and I think Ron called them good enough quarterbacks. Um, they're, they're, game managers in some cases if you will but they can do enough to, to put your team in a really competitive place and um i i think ron's taking a look at whether that strategy might make sense especially when you look at the salary um costs for superstar qbs or vet qbs and and the draft capital required to get them um i
2: like the way he's, he's looking at this yeah and with golf. Look, the Rams have done very well with Sean McVay, but all of the first-round picks that the Rams have had to invest in the quarterback position, first to get Golf, and now to get rid of Golf to get Stafford, that's about as inefficient as it gets, losing all those first-round picks. And I guess it can be debated how much draft picks matter, but there's got to be a better way to do this. I mean, all of these trade-ups in drafts to take quarterbacks, so many of them are not working out, especially these trade-ups into top threes, top fives. I mean, we obviously had one here with RG3, but it's not just that. It's Carson Wentz. It's Jared Goff. You know, it's Mitchell Trubisky. It's like as important as the quarterback position is, there are lessons to be learned here from what keeps happening with teams and them going after franchise quarterbacks in these drafts.
4: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think, you know, I look at last year's free agency class for Washington and, and honestly, I, I, am, I struggle to think of uh, a better free agency class, certainly for Washington, but maybe even in the NFL, than that one. I mean, all these guys who were sort of under the radar, um, who may have been bad fits sort of where they were, you look at like J.D. McKissick, uh, Logan Thomas, Cornelius Lucas, uh, just the list goes on and on. And these guys were, you know, bargain basements deals almost and and they were able to to through coaching or through you know them just sort of being at the evolutionary point point in their career to have success with very very little investment and you know yeah the team was 7 and 9 in a in a not great division but i think those guys you know could could take another step this year, um, and I think there's no reason you couldn't do the same thing at the quarterback position. There's a lot of vets, like you say, Foles, Fitzpatrick, who are sort of floating around, um, who don't have a lot of respect necessarily in the league, but who, if they're not having to do everything for a team, I think can um, can
2: can have some success. Yeah, it's funny with Washington's free agency approach last off season and in some ways this off season because the approach is reminiscent of the Bruce Allen approach in which you don't pay a lot of money and you try to make these bargain basement signings. But unlike under Broucifer, Washington actually signed the right guys last offseason. Like these guys ended up being guys who Washington correctly identified as being undervalued and Washington maximized these guys. And it just looks so smart. Uh, final question. I appreciate your time. So your name on Hogs Haven, Kyle Smith for GM. I take it you are among those not happy that Kyle Smith is no longer with Washington. <laughs>
4: I was unhappy when, when Kyle left. I mean, I, I still don't know the exact terms of it. I, Chris Russell has sort of, um, insinuated that he, he butted heads with somebody in the organization and I, maybe that was Rob Rogers. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it was Ron necessarily, but I think maybe it just was time for, for, uh, him to move on, and I wish him the best. Certainly in Atlanta, and I think you know he's got a promising future there. But I, I can't say that I've been disappointed with um, the Mayhew uh, Rivera, you know, Herney collective. Essentially, I mean, I think they've done a really nice job in two free agencies now, and and in two drafts. Um, and yeah, I I, I had my um, hopes that the Kyle might be the GM at some point, but but like I say, my really my My bigger interest is just making sure or hoping that this team could be well run for the first time in several
2: decades. Yeah, and it does feel like they're on that path, at least so far, no doubt. Well, look, man, I appreciate you coming on so much. Great article and uh, continued success at Haven.
4: Thank you, Al. Appreciate it.
2: You know, I had to laugh at Gerardo Parra's successful return to the majors with the Nationals on Sunday from an Orioles perspective. And if you're an O's fan, you know exactly of what I speak. One of the worst trades, maybe the worst trade, that Dan Duquette made during his tenure as Orioles Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations was the Gerardo Parra trade. July 31st, 2015, the O's traded pitching prospect Zach Davies to the Milwaukee Brewers for Gerardo Parra in hopes that Parra would help the O's make a postseason run that season. Well, the O's ended up not making the postseason in that 2015 season and Parra was horrible for the Orioles. Gerardo Parra, over 238 plate appearances for the O's in that 2015 season, had a batting average of 237 and on base percentage of 268, a slugging percentage of 357, and Davies ended up becoming a good pitcher. Now, he's been kind of up and down in his career, but Zach Davies had some really good seasons for the Brewers. His 2016, his 2017, his 2019, he was great for the San Diego Padres in 2020, especially for a team like the Orioles, which was trying to contend and was just starving for starting pitching, to have dealt away Zach Davies for a few bad months of Gerardo Parra. I know that stuck with me for the longest while. I'm sure it still sticks with many of you who are Orioles fans. Anyway, the Orioles are in a much different place now. They are tanking, they are rebuilding, and they continue to lose and lose a lot. Lost two or three games to the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. A 7-1 win on Friday night, but then came a 10-7 loss on Saturday and a 7-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. The O's now an American League worst 23-48 and 48, with an AL worst run differential of minus 82. Now, the series did begin with an Orioles victory. Again, 7-1 on Friday night, the circumstances for which were interesting. So the O's ended up placing the guy who was supposed to be their starting pitcher on Friday night, Bruce Zimmerman, on the 10-day injured list on Friday. O's made a flurry of roster moves on Friday, among them was putting the lefty starter, Bruce Zimmerman, on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 15th with left biceps tendinitis. And the corresponding roster move was the O's selecting the contract of Thomas Eshelman from AAA Norfolk. Orioles starting pitching has been wretched lately. Eshelman makes his spot start and actually does a nice job and what ends up being a 7-1 victory for the O's. One run in four and two thirds innings. Then in game two on Saturday, the 10-7 loss, The O's got an even better start. Dean Kramer had, by my count, his second best outing of the season with what he did on Saturday. Two runs in six innings on six strikeouts versus three hits, which were two homers and a single. He issued three walks on 90 pitches. Did a really good job. This game, in a lot of ways, was exactly what you want from the tanking O's this season. The game featured a young starting pitcher in Dean Kramer doing well. But the O's lost the game. Is that not hitting the inside straight for the Orioles this season? A potential young building block does well, but you end up losing the game. Uh, four Orioles relievers Tanner Scott, Hunter Harvey, Paul Fry, and Tyler Wells combined to allow eight runs in three innings. So the O's lost, but Dean Kramer did well. And it was good to see that it was this past Monday, June 14th, that the O's recalled Kramer from AAA Norfolk, to which he had been optioned on May 26th, off having struggled. Over his previous two starts, Kramer in his initial outing back that 4-3 loss at the Cleveland Indians on Monday night, four runs, three earned in five into third innings, but there was some bad luck involved in that outing. I didn't think that Kramer pitched as poorly in that game as his final line suggested. Uh, There was some bad luck involved. A three-run Indians first off Kramer included a full count Jose Ramirez RBI single on which the Orioles left fielder DJ Stewart broke back and fell down resulting in the ball just dropping uh, a few feet in front of him. Kramer did throw four scoreless innings after that Indians three-run first before giving up an unearned run in the bottom of the six, which featured two Orioles errors, a pass ball, and the run scoring on a one-out RBI double off the reliever Tyler Wells. So Kramer was actually decent, I thought, in that initial outing back. He was quite good in this loss to the Blue Jays on Saturday. And then came Matt Harvey, on Sunday. And you know what? Matt Harvey was actually decent for a good chunk of his outing and then came the rest of the outing. So 7-4 loss to the Blue Jays on Sunday afternoon. Harvey tossed four scoreless innings. Okay, doing well. Then came the top of the fifth in which he gave up four runs and recorded one out and that was it. His final line ended up being four runs in four and a third innings on nine hits, two walks, and a wild pitch versus four strikeouts on 84 pitches. Harvey in that Blue Jays four-run fifth gave up the four runs on two doubles, three singles, and a walk. I actually felt really bad for Harvey because he was doing well. I mean, this guy was is, is desperate for a good outing at this point, was having one, and then it all unraveled in that top of the fifth. So for Matt Harvey now, he has allowed 40 earned runs in 27 and a third innings over his last eight starts. This off him over his first seven starts of the season having an ERA of 360. His ERA for the season now, over 15 starts, is at 780. His whip now for the season is at 178. And I guess the O's are going to stick with him. I really don't see the point in him continuing to be in the rotation, but the Orioles seem to be set on Matt Harvey has to continue to be a part of the rotation. Uh, Some position player observations regarding the Orioles and losing two or three to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards over the weekend. So Cedric Mullins was outstanding over the first two games of this series. Mullins in the 7-1 win on Friday night. What a game. It was his t-shirt night, too. And, man, did he deliver. Lead-off homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the first. Single in the Orioles' one-run fifth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. A lead-off hit-by-pitch in the bottom of the seventh. And a two-out three-run homer in the Orioles' five-run eighth. And then Mullins in the 10-7 loss on Saturday. Two-out solo homer in the bottom of the third two-out first-pitch solo homer in the bottom of the seventh. He has been a staple for the Orioles this season. Starting center fielder, number one batter, he now has an OPS on the season of 941. He has been so good, and he was tremendous over the first two games of this series. Ryan Mountcastle had a massive game in the 10-7 loss to the Blue Jays on Saturday. Starting DH, number five batter, three home runs and a single, finished with four hits and four RBI. So the Nats had a guy with a three-homer game over the weekend, Kyle Swerber on Sunday, and the Orioles had a guy with a three-homer game over the weekend, Ryan Mountcastle on Saturday. He had a one-out solo homer in the bottom of the second. He had a one-out first pitch two-run homer in the Orioles' three-run fourth, during which we had an incident. Uh, Benches and bullpens cleared, and the Blue Jays' starting pitcher, Alec Manoa, was ejected off Manoa, hitting Michael Franco with the first pitch of a plate appearance of back-to-back homers by Mountcastle and DJ Stewart. That seemed to be about as obvious as can be when it comes to a pitcher intentionally throwing at a batter. You get back-to-back bombs by Mountcastle and Stewart and then the very first pitch of the next plate appearance, Manoa Plunk's Franco, uh you know, there was no real fighting, but the benches and the bullpens did clear. I always laugh when the bullpens clear All these relievers come jogging in haphazardly. By the time they get to the infield, everything is calmed down, and then these guys all have to go jogging back together in unison to their respective bullpens. It it, just—it looks so phony whenever it happens. But anyway, uh, Mountcastle had a home run in that testy fourth inning, and then he had another homer in the game—a one-out solo homer in the bottom of the sixth, and he had a first-pitch single in the bottom of the eighth inning. So great to see Mountcastle with a big game on Saturday. Trey Mancini had a big game in the 7-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. Starting first baseman, number two batter, had a one-out full-count solo homer in the bottom of the first, had a two-out-two run homer in the Orioles' three-run eighth. Mancini now with an OPS of 8.43 on the season. Orioles hit a lot of home runs in this series, but still ended up dropping two of three. The other item of note regarding the Orioles' weekend is this. The Orioles DFA'd Chance Sisko on Friday. Uh, I mentioned the flurry of roster moves by the O's on Friday. Among those moves was them designating catcher Chance Sisko for assignment. Uh, you may recall the O's on Memorial Day optioned Cisco to AAA Norfolk and selected the contract of catcher Austin Wins from Norfolk. But the decline of Chance Cisco really is something. The O's took Cisco in the second round of the 2013 MLB draft. Cisco in February 2017, was ranked by MLB Pipeline as the Orioles' number one prospect. Now, the Orioles' farm system was not exactly in stellar shape at that time, but still, Chance Sisko was the Orioles' number one prospect in February 2017, and here we are in June 2021, and he has been DFA'd. Uh, He was a failure at the Major League level. At least he has been a failure at the major league level. Maybe he finds himself with somebody else. Maybe he ends up back in the Orioles organization and is somehow able to get things together. But Chance Sisko, over 73 plate appearances this season, a batting average of 154, an on-base percentage of 247, a slugging percentage of 185. That is horrendous. Cisco uh, over his career with the Orioles, 598 plate appearances, batting average of 199, on base percentage of 319, slugging percentage of 339, and he has had very mixed defensive metrics. So it's not like, well, he's been great defensively, he's just been bad offensively. No, he's been bad offensively, and he's been mixed at best defensively. He's in his age 26 season. We know sometimes it takes a while, especially for catchers to find themselves, but this is nothing short of a debacle what has ended up happening here with Chance Cisco? I mean, especially when you consider the Orioles, right? Again, Tanking team, rebuilding team. If there's any team that can afford to exhibit some patience with a developing player, it's the Orioles. And yet, even they are like, "All right, we're done with Chance Cisco. Okay, let's move on." Now, we all know long term, the catcher for this team is going to be Adley Rutschman, but we're not there yet. And you can never have enough in the way of quality catchers. So if if the Orioles liked Chance Cisco, they would have kept him on board. Like the fact that they DFA'd him really told you a lot. And you know. I would say this from a Nationals perspective, given that the Nats don't have a lot in their farm system and especially don't have a lot at the position of catcher, I actually think Cisco would make some sense for the Nats and, you know, take a flyer on him. Now, I don't know if the Nats will be able to get him, but uh, I would be open to that from a Nationals perspective, you know? Why not? Uh, A guy who was a second-round pick, a guy who at one point, again, was the Orioles' number one prospect and has fallen on hard times, and maybe he never figures it out, but the Nats have had this knack for taking... Other teams trash and turning those guys into treasure, right? Whether it is Gerardo Parra or, you know, is Drupal Cabrera or Josh Harrison. So maybe Chancisco is someone who could end up figuring some things out with a new team in the Nationals. Next up for the O's, a three-game series against the Houston Astros at Camden Yards. Game one Monday night at 7.05. Keegan Aiken versus Jake Odorizzi. The Astros are soaring right now. Seven consecutive wins. Houston just authored a four-game sweep of the American League Central leading Chicago White Sox. The Astros ripped the White Sox in that series. The Astros are an AL best 43 and 28. The Astros have the best run differential in the majors at plus 112. I mean, how about that? Houston has outscored opposing teams this season by 112 runs. As yes, Dusty Baker, the former Nats manager is killing it in his second season. As Astro's manager All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. but just for now, keep the feedback coming. you can tweet me at Algaldi. you can email me the Algoldi podcast at yahoo.com. Among the items that I'll be discussing on Tuesday's installment of the podcast, are we in the midst of a paradigm shift in the NBA? The conference finals feature just one top two seed and include the four-seeded Los Angeles Clippers and the five-seeded Atlanta Hawks? Is the NBA becoming more unpredictable, more equal opportunity? And if so, what might this mean for our Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday.
4: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early,